War and Peace Book 3, Chapter 12 Read for LibriVox.org By Mark O'Neill Shortly after nine o'clock that evening, Weyrother drove with his plans to Kutuzov's quarters, where the council of war was to be held. All the commanders of columns were summoned to the commander-in-chiefs, and with the exception of Prince Bagration, who declined to come, were all there at the appointed time. Weyrother, who was in full control of the proposed battle, by his eagerness and briskness, presented a marked contrast to the dissatisfied and drowsy Kutuzov, who reluctantly played the part of chairman and president of the Council of War. Weyrother evidently felt himself to be at the head of a movement that had already become unrestrainable. He was like a horse running downhill, harnessed to a heavy cart. Whether he was pulling it or being pushed by it, he did not know, but rushed along at headlong speed, with no time to consider what this movement might lead to. Weyrother had been twice that evening to the enemy's picket line to reconnoiter personally, and twice to the emperors, Russian and Austrian, to report and explain, and to his headquarters, where he had dictated the dispositions in German, and now much exhausted, he arrived at Kutuzov's. He was evidently so busy that he even forgot to be polite to the commander-in-chief. He interrupted him, talked rapidly and indistinctly, without looking at the man he was addressing, and did not reply to questions put to him. He was bespattered with mud and had a pitiful, weary and distracted air, though at the same time he was haughty and self-confident. Kutuzov was occupying a nobleman's castle of modest dimensions, near Austerlitz. In the large drawing-room which had become the commander-in-chief's office were gathered Kutuzov himself, Weyrother, and the members of the Council of War. They were drinking tea and only awaited Prince Bagration to begin the council. At last Bagration's orderly came in with the news that the prince could not attend. Prince Andrew came in to inform the commander-in-chief of this, and availing himself of permission previously given him by Kutuzov to be present at the council, he remained in the room. "'Since Prince Bagration is not coming, we may begin,' said Weyrother, hurriedly rising from his seat and going up to the table, on which an enormous map of the environs of Brune were spread out. Kutuzov, with his uniform unbuttoned, so that his fat neck bulged over his collar, as if escaping, was sitting almost asleep in a low chair, with his podgy old hands resting symmetrically on its arms. At the sound of Weyrother's voice, he opened his one eye with an effort. "'Yes, yes, if you please, it's already late,' said he, and nodding his head, he let it droop and again closed his eye. If at first the members of the council thought that Kutuzov was pretending to sleep, the sounds his nose emitted during the reading that followed proved that the commander-in-chief at that moment was absorbed by a far more serious matter than a desire to show his content for the dispositions or anything else. He was engaged in satisfying the irresistible human need for sleep. He really was asleep. Weyrother, with the gesture of a man too busy to lose a moment, glanced at Kutuzov, and having convinced himself that he was asleep, took up a paper, and in a loud, monotonous voice, began to read out the dispositions for the impending battle, under a heading which he also read out. Dispositions for an attack on the enemy position 
behind cobble nets and circle nets, November 30th, 1805. The dispositions were very complicated and difficult. They began as follows. As the enemy's left wing rests on wooded hills, and his right extends along cobble nets and circle nets, behind the ponds that are there, while we, on the other hand, with our left wing by far, outflank his right. It is advantageous to attack the enemy's latter wing, especially if we occupy the villages of Sokolnitz and Kobolnitz, whereby we can both fall on his flank and pursue him over the plain, between Schlepanitz and the Thurasa forest, avoiding the defiles of Schlepanitz and Belovitz, which cover the enemy's front. For this object, it is necessary that the first column marches, the second column marches, the third column marches, and so on, read Wayrother. The generals seemed to listen reluctantly to the difficult dispositions. The tall, fair-haired General Buxhowden stood, leaning his back against the wall, his eyes fixed on a burning candle, and seemed not to listen to or even to wish to be thought to listen. Exactly opposite Wayrother, with his glistening wide-open eyes fixed upon him, and his moustache twisted upwards, sat the ruddy Milovodovich in a military pose, his elbows turned outwards, his hands on his knees, and his shoulders raised. He remained stubbornly silent, gazing at Wayrother's face, and only turning away his eyes when the Austrian chief of staff finished reading. Then Milovodovich looked round significantly at the other generals. Yet one could not tell from that significant look whether he agreed or disagreed, and was satisfied or not with the arrangements. Next to Wayrother sat Count Langeron, who, with a subtle smile that never left his typically southern French face during the whole time of the reading, gazed at his delicate fingers, which rapidly twirled by its corners a gold snuff-box, on which was a portrait. In the middle of one of the longest sentences, he stopped the rotary motion of the snuff-box, raised his head, and with imicable politeness, lurking in the corners of his thin lips, interrupted Wayrother, wishing to say something. But the Austrian general, continuing to read, frowned angrily, and jerked his elbows, as if to say, You can tell me your views later, but now be so good as to look at the map and listen. Langeron lifted his eyes with an expression of perplexity, turned around to Milodovich, as if seeking an explanation, but meeting the latter's impressive but meaningless gaze, drooped his eyes sadly, and again took to twirling his snuff-box. A geography lesson, he muttered, as if to himself, but loud enough to be heard. Prebizuski, with respectful but dignified politeness, held his hand to his ear towards Wayrother, with the air of a man absorbed in attention. Duterov, a little man, sat opposite Wayrother, with an assiduous and modest mien, and stooping over the outspread map, conscientiously studied the dispositions and the unfamiliar locality. He asked Wayrother several times to repeat words he had not clearly heard, and the difficult names of villages. Wayrother complied, and Duterov noted them down. When the reading which lasted more than an hour was over, Langeron again brought his snuff-box to rest, and without looking at Wayrother or at anyone in particular, began to say how difficult it was to carry out such a plan in which the enemy's position was assumed to be known, 
whereas it was perhaps not known, since the enemy was in movement. Langeron's objections were valid, but it was obvious that their chief aim was to show General Weyrother, who had read his dispositions with as much self-confidence as if he was addressing school children, that he had to do not with fools, but with men who could teach him something in military matters. When the monotonous sound of Weyrother's voice ceased, Kutuzov opened his eye as a miller wakes up when the soporific drone of the mill wheel is interrupted. He listened to what Langeron said, as if remarking, So you are still at that silly business, quickly closed his eye again and let his head sink still lower. Langeron, trying as virulently as possible to sting Weyrother's vanity as author of the military plan, argued that Bonaparte might easily attack instead of being attacked, and so render the whole of this plan perfectly worthless. Weyrother met all objections with a firm and contemptuous smile, evidently prepared beforehand to meet all objections, be they what they might. If he could attack us, he would have done so today, said he. So you think he is powerless, said Langeron. He has 40,000 men at most, replied Weyrother, with the smile of a doctor to whom an old wife wishes to explain the treatment of a case. In that case, he is inviting his doom by awaiting our attack, said Langeron, with a subtly ironical smile, again glancing round for support to Miladovich, who was near him. But Miladovich was at that moment evidently thinking of anything rather than of what the generals were disputing about. Ma foi, said he, tomorrow we shall see all that on the battlefield. Weyrother again gave that smile which seemed to say that to him it was strange and ridiculous to meet objections from Russian generals and to have to prove to them what he had not merely convinced himself of, but had also convinced the sovereign emperors of. The enemy has quenched his fires, and a continual noise is heard from his camp, said he. What does that mean? Either he is retreating, which is the only thing we need fear, or he is changing his position. He smiled ironically. But even if he also took up a position in the Thurassa, he merely saves us a great deal of trouble, and all our arrangements to the minutest detail remain the same. How is that? began Prince Andrew, who had for long been waiting an opportunity to express his doubts. Kutuzov here woke up, coughed heavily, and looked round at the generals. Gentlemen, the dispositions for tomorrow, or rather for today, for it is past midnight, cannot now be altered, said he. You have heard them, and we shall all do our duty. But before a battle there is nothing more important, he paused, than to have a good sleep. He moved as if to rise. The generals bowed and retired. It was past midnight. Prince Andrew went out. The council of war, at which Prince Andrew had not been able to express his opinion as he had hoped to, left on him a vague and uneasy impression. Whether Dolgorov and Weyrother, or Kutuzov, Langeron and the others who did not approve of the plan of attack were right, he did not know. But was it really not possible for Kutuzov to state his views plainly to the Emperor? Is it possible that on account of court and personal considerations, tens of thousands of lives, and my life, my life, he thought, must be risked. Yes, it is very likely that I shall be killed tomorrow, he thought. And suddenly, at this thought of death, a whole series of most distant, most intimate memories rose in his imagination. He remembered his last parting from his father and his wife. 
He remembered the days when he first loved her. He thought of her pregnancy and felt sorry for her and for himself. And in a nervously emotional and softened mood, he went out of the hut in which he was billeted with Novitsky and began to walk up and down before it. The night was foggy, and through the fog the moonlight gleamed mysteriously. Yes, tomorrow, tomorrow, he thought. Tomorrow everything may be over for me. All these memories will be no more. None of them will have any meaning for me. Tomorrow, perhaps, even certainly, I have a presentiment that for the first time I shall have to show all I can do. And his fancy pictured the battle, its loss, the concentration of fighting at one point, and the hesitation of all the commanders. And then that happy moment, that Toulon for which he had long waited, presents itself to him at last. He firmly and clearly expresses his opinion to Kutuzov, to Weyrother, and to the emperors. All are struck by the justness of his views, but no one undertakes to carry them out, so he takes a regiment. A division stipulates that no one is to interfere with his arrangements, leads his division to the decisive point, and gains the victory alone. But death and suffering, suggested another voice. Prince Andrew, however, did not answer that voice, and went on dreaming of his triumphs. The dispositions for the next battle are planned by him alone. Nominally, he is only an adjutant on Kutuzov's staff, but he does everything alone. The next battle is won by him alone. Kutuzov is removed and he is appointed. Well, and then? asked the other voice. If before that you are not ten times wounded, killed or betrayed, well, what then? Well then, Prince Andrew answered himself, I don't know what will happen, and don't want to know, and can't, but if I want this, want glory, want to be known to men, want to be loved by them, it is not my fault that I want it, and want nothing but that, and live only for that. Yes, for that alone. I shall never tell anyone, but, oh God, what am I to do if I love nothing but fame and men's esteem? Death, wounds, the loss of family, I fear nothing. And precious and dear as many persons are to me, father, sister, wife, those dearest to me, yet dreadful and unnatural as it seems, I would give them all at once for a moment of glory, of triumph over men, of men here, he thought. As he listened to voices in Kutuzov's courtyard, the voices were those of the orderlies who were packing up. One voice, probably a coachman's, was teasing Kutuzov's old cook, whom Prince Andrew knew, and who was called Tit. He was saying, Tit, I say, Tit. Well, returned the old man. Go, Tit, thresh a bit, said the wag. Oh, go to the devil, called out a voice, drowned by the laughter of the orderlies and servants. All the same, I love and value nothing, but triumph over them all. I value this mystic power and glory that is floating here above me in this mist. End of chapter 12. Recording by Mark O'Neill, Würzburg, Germany, www.betterthantherapy.net.